minutes, project number five. It's Silverado this time, that's no jive. I'm Lawrence Kazan, who wrote the show. Yes, I love that kids, cause here we go. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Silverado Minute Podcast, where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed Western movie, Silverado, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host this week as we begin to wrap up the film. I'm Alan Sanders, one of two hosts of the podcast, The Wilder Ride. Now, we started off as a Movies by Minutes cast, It was me and my buddy Walt Murray created the podcast The Wilder Ride because we wanted to break down movies by Gene Wilder. And so in our first season, several years ago, we broke down Young Frankenstein, one minute of that movie at a time. Season two, we broke down Blazing Saddles, one minute of that movie at a time. Then as uh, the world went through some changes, we changed our format to a talk show And we ended up doing a bunch of really cool interviews with guests from around the world and around our nation. It was really a lot of fun and would encourage you to go check those out because most of those guests, fairly evergreen in terms of the content. We were interested in them, their history, their stories, how they came to be where they are and where they're going. And then in this most recent season, well, things have shaken up once again. And I'll explain that and it helps explain why I'm running solo today. We did do a show in July. It was part of our patriotic show. We got together with one of our good buddies, BK, and we broke down our top favorite patriotic films, songs, and historical figures. And that was a lot of fun. So you can find that episode for our, quote, fifth season. I say, quote, because we have yet to have another episode besides that one. And why is it? Why am I solo? Why am I by myself? Why has our format changed so much? Well, I'm going to do a shout-out to my good buddy, Walt. He is an amazing guy and has been through a lot in the last few years. You thought there was a lot going on outside? Walt was dealing with a lot of stuff, and we did mention a lot of it over the course of our episodes. But as a recap, or if this is the first time you're hearing of us, uh, Walt's mom got very, very ill. Uh, He spent a couple of our uh, seasons tending to her, driving back and forth, And she eventually succumbed to cancer. That in and of itself going on with a marriage that was on the rocks. Turns out that things went even worse. Ended up getting a divorce. There was a lot of angst and turmoil. As you know, anytime there's a separation, even if it's on on good terms, it's stressful. But on top of all that turmoil, there is a massive rainbow that we come to. Walt was lucky enough to stumble across uh, somebody who suddenly became a very important person in his life. They both found something in each other, both of them uh, with kids from separate marriages, now embarking on a brand new adventure. Walt got remarried and has been living the honeymoon life for the last several months. And I got to tell you, as somebody who understands that kind of angst and turmoil of going through a separation, going through a divorce, fighting for custody, then eventually thinking you're never going to find somebody only to find somebody who had the same story and then you end up getting together and create the blended family. I am not going to begrudge Walt any second of happiness and joy that he is well due. In fact, everybody in the audience is due that kind of happiness at least at one point in their life, if not for all of it. 
So I'm here by myself. I'm Alan Sanders. As I said, I am one of the two hosts of the Wilder Ride. And I want to talk about Silverado. Now, I'm going to start off right here at the beginning telling you something that I think is important to know. I have not listened to one second of one broadcast of any of the amazing Movies by Minutes podcasters who have come before me. And I did that intentionally. See, starting this project back several years ago, Jim O'Kane, the grand poobah of the Movies by Minutes community, a collection of podcasters who are drawn to this format of breaking down their favorite films, one minute of that movie dedicated to an entire episode, talking about the actors, the scenes, what's happening, everyone having their own take on that format. Jim O'Kane came up with the idea of, hey, what if we got a bunch of people together and everybody takes a, a couple of minutes of a movie and we call it the Movies by Minutes compilation or collaboration project. And so for the last few years, that's happened. And in fact, Walt and I, coming into the organization, we were able to be part of the last now three years. We actually had a chance to open the last two films. We did North by Northwest by Alfred Hitchcock, a Movies by Minutes collaborative project. We then followed it up with the best years of our lives, the World War II Academy Award winning flick, and had a chance to open that season. So it came as a bit of a shock to us that we were actually at the very end of this train, Rather than the engine trying to get it all rolling, we're the caboose bringing it home. And I made a conscious decision that I would not listen to anybody else's show until our episodes had been recorded and come to fruition. And the reason I wanted to do that is I didn't want to have any bias, any previous knowledge. I didn't want to have anything maybe edit me or censor me moving forward through our minutes here for this week. Part of that is because if it's redundant, well, then it ends up being an accident. If I end up telling you something you already knew, or if I come up with some observation that it's been talked about incessantly, well, it's because I didn't know it's already been covered. I was worried if I listened to any of the shows prior, I may find myself self-editing, choosing not to go down a path, or maybe not say it in the way I would say it because, oh, it's already been said before. So indulge me in that. And I am so looking forward to being able to now go back and listen to all of the season, to, to the very beginning of the Silverado Minute, going all the way back. And I'm going to do a shout-out. I know if you've been listening since Minute 1, you've already heard all these folks, but I am going to do a shout-out to all of the individuals and or podcast teams that have made this show a reality for this season. And it started off in Minute 1 with the Malkovich Malkovich Minute Minute. So thank you guys for kicking it off. You guys had a chance to be the engine. We followed up with the team from Minutia X Machina. Then Stillo and Horowitz, followed by Rory Eilward. Then the Minute Impossible folks breaking down their minutes. We had the Deep Blue Sea podcast. We had David Smith take on a week. The folks with the Indiana Jones Minute. Jones! Those guys have a fantastic podcast. Edge of Tomorrow. The Marine Corps Movie Minute podcast. Hoorah! Jay and Silent Bob Minute, Sean and Brian German, Bull Durham Minute, our uh, aforementioned Jim O'Kane doing uh, a, a week from the Rocketeer and Apollo 13 Minute, my buddy from Israel, Movie Rob, The Great Escape Minute, Alice Lauren took on minutes, Peter Reagan, The Real Jaws Minute, MASH Minute, Watchmen Minute, The Two Minute Terminator, 
the guys who gave us the start of this format. We go to the Star Wars Minute, then Dean O'Carroll, Campbell and Almond, Dave Palace, and you're now with us, the Wilder Ride. So that's a shout out to everyone who came before us. If you are just now stumbling across and you're hearing me, you just knew about me or Walt or the Wilder Ride, go back, check out from the very beginning, just like I'll be doing now that my minutes are in the can and shipped and now being delivered to you. Before we look at Minute 126, which starts off this final week of the Silverado Minute, first and foremost, my recollection of Silverado. Came out in 1985. Big year for movies. Uh, the 80s, kind of a huge year for movies, especially for me being a Gen Xer. But in 85, I wasn't quite old enough to get my license. Uh, I wouldn't turn 15 until late in the year. I have a late November birthday, so I was 14 when this movie hit the movie theaters. That gives you a little insight into my background and age. I will also tell you that while I remember the advertising for it, I wasn't really drawn to go to the movie theater anyway. It was a Western, and as a kid, I wasn't really into Westerns. I mean, I sort of appreciated them. I had a father, career military, who raised me on John Wayne and Clint Eastwood flicks, so... I was aware of the Man With No Name trilogy. I was well aware of Outlaw Josie Wales. I was, of course, aware of all of the John Wayne Westerns and just Westerns in general my dad seemed to like. And I guess at that point in my life, being a middle teenager, worried more about, oh, I'm going to be driving soon. I'm going to get my learners and I'm in high school and I'm dealing with all of the things that teenagers deal with. The idea that I'd sit down and enjoy a movie with my dad, especially a Western, I mean, that just wasn't my thing. But I do remember when it came out on VHS. We did one of those blockbuster Friday nights, went to the blockbuster. We're going to pick two or three movies to rent for over the weekend. And I said, well, I might as well finally see Silverado. Now, I can tell you my impression still sticks with me from when I first saw it. I didn't really care for the movie the first time I saw it. I thought it felt unfocused it didn't feel like some of the other westerns i had seen it just it felt different i can tell you that it it just didn't connect with me the first time i watched it i didn't hate it but i didn't find myself saying "Ooh, i've got to go see that again later as i got a little bit older revisited it when my kids were first born one of those things where it came on i don't know if it was tbs or some channel pre-streaming days and i enjoyed it more I think probably because I had seen those actors in other movies and said oh I didn't realize that they were in this I had forgotten oh yeah Danny Glover from the Lethal Weapon franchise oh yeah Scott Glenn from Silence of the Lambs the the Hunt for Red October Backdraft just a bunch of great movies and I was like oh and then Kevin Klein oh my god the guy who got the best supporting actor award for uh, a fish called Wanda oh my god a funny guy in a western that ought to be cool so I had a chance to rewatch it with new eyes as my kids were now young, as they were watching me watch a Western and they had pretty much the same idea. Oh, dad's watching a Western. And they, <laughs> they went to the other room to go do something else. I watched it maybe two or three more times since it's been out. Most recently, about two years ago. Now we got in this tradition. My wife's mom and dad live in upstate New York and her mom uh, got sick several years ago, uh, came down with uh, cancer and, and eventually died. And my wife had to go up there for the funeral. And since then, she was really worried about her dad, you know, being up there, being alone, being so far away. 
And so we worked it out where he would come down right around the holidays to spend the holidays with us. And gradually that extended into not just a, a couple of weeks visit. It actually, the very first time my wife said, I'd like for him to come down and, and spend the holidays with us. Uh, before I realized I had said yes, I missed the part where she said, and hang out for about three or four months. <laughs> so I had my father-in-law come and visit and turned out to be one of the most magnificent years to do this tradition of having him visit and having him spend time with us. And he has since passed away. He died earlier this year. And the last time he was with us visiting, we went through a series of movies, as we often do. He is a movie watcher, loves watching movies. And we came up with Silverado. And so we watched it actually a couple of years ago. And I remember how much he enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it because he was enjoying it and because we were spending time together. And I really, truly loved the time I had with my father-in-law. It wasn't as long because I came into the marriage so much later, uh, being a second husband for my wife, and didn't really hang out with them until the passing of her mom. And then we made a point of saying, well, we want to make sure we're making as much of our time with him as we can. When this project got launched, I immediately jumped onto it saying, we got to do this. Not only have I had a blast the last few, but hey, it's Silverado. It's a fun Western. It's Lawrence Kasdan. I really want to now do the whole movies by minutes dive into this. So I was super excited to watch it. And ironically, when I started rewatching it, I was in contact with Jim O'Kane and I was messaging him. And I remember one of the first things I said was, this movie, every time I watch it, I love that it doesn't feel like a typical narrative. It sometimes feels like it's all over the place, but at the same time, it feels so much like real life. Sometimes we don't know what's going to happen next, and we don't know why something's important, and we don't know why we're being taken down one rabbit trail or another, and eventually it all does sort of come together. But that was my impression, and it was my initial impression from when I saw it when I was 15 or 16, whenever it came out on VHS in 86 or 87. I can't remember how long you used to have to wait for a, a hit movie in the theater to be released on VHS, but it felt all over the place, and even re-watching it, it doesn't feel like a typical story narrative. I mean, it starts off where... Scott Glenn, we don't even know who he is, we don't even know what's going on, is, is being attacked by some unseen forces in this little shack. And he manages to uh, cunningly get his way out of it, showing his skill as not only a warrior, but as a gunslinger. No idea where the story's going. We stumble across Kevin Klein in his long johns, roasting in the sun, thinking, that's it, his, his life has ended. Don't know anything about him. We, we, we just kind of were watching, almost as if it's a a real-life television docu-series. We're just following these people and seeing what happens. Now, granted, it is a Hollywood movie. It has Hollywood moments. It's not a docu-series. But it had sort of the same kind of feeling of real life or the sense of, where are we going? What's the point? What's next? If that bothers you as a movie watcher, you may find yourself going, oh, come on, I don't understand. What's the point of the movie? Trust me, the payoff, which is the week we're in, is well worth it it all does eventually come together. There are a few loose ends. There are a few things we'll talk about this week. I'll just give you sort of a tease that never really made sense to me. A couple of things I'm like, huh? But we'll wait for those minutes to get to it. What I remember more than anything about watching this movie again 
is the powerful performances of so many of these actors. And having actors that I had a stereotypical view of what I thought they were capable of, and yet doing something different in this kind of a movie or this kind of a role. John Cleese playing a, a not necessarily racist, but certainly a no-nonsense English sheriff in one town. Watching Brian Dennehy as the villain, but with such an affable, likable atmosphere and a smile and a twinkle in his eye when he talked, you couldn't possibly bring yourself to believe that he was the villain. Kevin Klein, comedic actor playing a gunslinger and somebody with a more significant, maybe serious role. Scott Glenn, just brilliant, obviously. Linda Hunt, you just like, where did she come from? And oh my gosh, she is just amazing to watch on screen. You had Kevin Costner, so young, but just really becoming that household name in the mid-80s. You had Danny Glover, also just uh, you know cast in this, and you're thinking, wait a minute, that, that, that kind of boggles my mind. I remember thinking, initially when I was a kid, I didn't know enough about the West. I didn't know about what a mixture of races and ethnicities and backgrounds moved and were part of the Western landscape. Like I said, I grew up watching the kind of John Wayne movies that were unfortunately painted a certain color, and that color didn't include a lot of diversity. In fact, the one the one Western I loved growing up, which is why we covered it in season two, was the Mel Brooks satire, Blazing Saddles. And it, in my mind, Blazing Saddles had the different races and the different ethnicities simply because it was pointing out how stupid racism is. And I thought, well, obviously you had to put all these different races, including the black guy, the Irish people, the Chinese people. You had to put all these different folks so they could be the butt of supposed jokes, but turn out that it was the white people in it that were the butt of all the jokes. And I thought, well, okay, Mel Brooks did that simply because he's telling a satire. He's showing a reflection to modern day at that time, 1974 audiences about how stupid racism is. It never occurred to me that maybe one of the most diverse, accurately depicted backgrounds of the West was a Mel Brooks satire, Blazing Saddles. So here comes this movie and Danny Glover and then his sister plays a part. We realize, oh, there was a multicultural texture to the West. Yes, if you didn't know that, then, you know, hey, your eyes got open just a little bit more. There's a whole lot to Western history that we have to be careful that our movies don't necessarily dictate how we learn about the West. It's great to see movies, but sometimes going out and reading actual history and doing a little bit of the historical digging is a little bit more accurate than trusting Hollywood to get it right. So let's get into this minute. Now that I've given you my background, given you my thoughts of the film, I want to talk about the absolute honor it is to have what I think is the single most pivotal moment of this movie. We have two characters who, for whatever reason, have been somehow on this destined crash course of high noon in the center of the street in your typical, very stereotypical Western motif of two men facing off, ready to draw, and hopefully the good guy wins and the bad guy loses. Here's the crazy thing about the difference of this really familiar scene. You kind of like both characters. And the way Brian Dennehy plays sort of that grandfather character with the smile and the twinkle, and he just seems so likable, it blows your mind to think he's the bad guy. And in fact... Even when you come to terms with it in the story, you're like, but I kind of still like him. I kind of don't hate him. 
I hate maybe the people he surrounded himself with. They carried out all the deeds, but he was the kingpin. He was the head of the crime family, just, you know, taking over the role of sheriff to be able to get away with all of his misdeeds. And the thing is, we know as we move along in the story that Payton and Cobb, Kevin Klein's character and Brian Dennehy's character, that they ran in the same sort of maybe bad guy uh, outfit for a while. And then something happened. We find out it had to do with a dog and they got separated and then something snapped in Payton. Something made him realize there's a better path to be on. I can choose a more moral or ethical way to live my life. That doesn't mean he's all of a sudden pure as the wind-driven snow. In fact, obviously he's trying to get his horse back. He's trying to get his guns back at the beginning of the movie. He's trying to find out where the trying to find the people who left him to die in the sun. And that gets him into some trouble, but we understand it being more of sort of the gray hero rather than a perfectly lily white hero. He obviously has a past. He has some darkness and he is trying to make a, a, a make better choices. So to find these two coming head to head, I think is fantastic. It's great storytelling. It's something we've seen before the duel in the middle of town but it's got a completely different feel to it. So let's get into the staging. Because as Peyton is coming through town, we know that Brian Dennehy's character, Cobb, has gotten down off the porch to go and meet him. But not directly. He's heading out to the middle of the street so they can square off. Still smiling as dust blows behind him. And I noticed that the very first thing that we see behind Cobb is nothing but desert, dirt, some mountains in the background, but a wasteland. And it occurred to me from a cinematic perspective, from a visual storytelling perspective, that while the likable villain of Cobb is coming into the dead center of screen to meet his foe for a high noon duel, he's all alone. There is no one with him. There's nothing behind him. He is in a vast wasteland of nothingness, as if symbolically reflecting who he has become, and where he is at this very moment in time. Whereas the flip side, showing Peyton, who's new to the town, who's new to what's happening to the people of Silverado, has all of the buildings behind him. And the only signs of life are horses, but they're alive and they're moving. And yes, we do get your tumbleweeds and we get dust in the wind. He's got the town figuratively behind him. Symbolically, it means he's the guy everyone's looking to to solve the problem. The problem of the corrupt sheriff, the corrupt criminal, the character of Cobb, who has likely, and we've seen it, ruled viciously and to his own ends. It's a wonderful visual backdrop to recognize from a cinematic perspective. Everything is on Payton's side. Nothing is on Cobb's side when you look at their angles. As they get to the point where they're both going to stop and square off at however many paces, 20 or so paces from each other, we cut to 
Linda Hunt. Now, Linda Hunt, to me, has always been one of those actresses I cannot help but just be enamored with her visual performance, her facial recognition of what's happening in the scene. She's the very definition that film actors should aspire to of think loud, but you don't have to be loud. You can let it all happen in your eyes, in your face, and you can telegraph so much of your emotion and where you are, who you are, what you're thinking, what you're going through without necessarily saying a word. Linda Hunt is just fabulous to watch. If you've not seen her in anything else, she's got an entire body of work well worth checking out. Even if the movie or the TV show to which she somehow has attached herself falls or is canceled because of lack of ratings, you always get something from her. And we know from the movie, and you've heard about it from other people talking about it, that Cobb used the relationship that formed between her and Peyton, not a romantic one, but a professional one, and certainly maybe more of a chivalrous relationship, where Peyton sort of felt a protector of her, recognized that she was being kept under Cobb's thumb, and that Cobb was not giving her the freedom that she was so desperately wanting to run her business her way, to be free, to do her job the way she felt best, not just carry out Cobb's orders. So she comes running from an alleyway up onto a porch and is directly between the two men, as Cobb put her directly between himself and Payton to try to use her to force Payton to join his criminality. And now we have a visual representation of her literally up higher, standing on the boardwalk outside of the uh, businesses, up off the dirt road, on the, bo- on the planks. And as we see in the medium-wide shot that establishes their locations, she is directly between them. It's a triangular direction, but you have the two men facing off. Cobb on the far left, Payton on the far right, and Stella up on the boardwalk. It's a great shot. We see the town is still with Payton, and there is nothing at all behind the sheriff, who is standing parallel to the jail, but nothing behind him besides whirls of dust and loneliness and isolation, and emptiness. The dialogue here could not be better. What a waste. This could have been such a sweet deal for us. Yeah. Bad luck. Goodbye, cop. Goodbye, Peyton. The dialogue isn't, I've come to take you out, or about time you showed up, or I'm here to kill you. Well, I'm here to kill you. None of that. The dialogue is wonderful. What I love about it is it starts off with Cobb, a still very confident a very comfortable and affable and still likable Cobb who says, what a waste. As if guilting him to say, are you really going to do this? I mean, come on. You could aspire to so much more. In fact, he even says, what a waste. This could have been 
Such a sweet deal for us. He's goading him one last time. Ah, oh, what a waste. This could have been such a sweet deal for us. And then it cuts to Payton, who acknowledges, yeah, bad luck. Bad luck. Think about what he's saying. Had that dog not come into our lives, had the situation, had that dog and that and everything that followed not transpired, I may still be riding with you. I may have been your second-hand man here in this very town. I may have still been on the path I was on when I first rode with you. But because of circumstance, because of blind luck, or as he says, bad luck, he ended up on a different path, and now instead of running parallel, has run into an intersection where we now meet. And then he says, goodbye, Cobb, to which it cuts back a smile. Goodbye, Payton. Wonderful. Once again, not stereotypical, not I'm going to enjoy killing you or you shouldn't have come. It's as if they're leaving a dinner party or they're leaving some kind of a civic event and they're like, oh, it was great to catch up with you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Till the next time. Well, there won't be a next time. The scene ends with the music swelling and building to the point where we see them each readying themselves for whoever's going to make the first move. I want to note something when we get the medium shot of Payton and the dialogue is going back and forth. Behind him, not only is he representing the town, not only is the town figuratively and probably now literally behind him, <laughs> directly behind him, but also in the very center of the road is the town church. A stark white building with a white tower pointing to a blue sky as if a symbol of all that is good and righteous. And it is exactly at the polar opposite of town of where Cobb is standing, who represents the villainy, the gluttony, the love of money, the the lascivious lifestyle that Cobb embodies, the criminality of those around him, the criminality of his empire. They are at opposite ends of the town. And the church is directly behind Payton, as if also backing him up, that he is just, that he is righteous in what he is doing to remove the evil from the town. We get two very quick shots from gun holster level. First of Payton with his hand in the frame, right poised to grab his gun. You see in the background Cobb who's holding the tail of his coat behind him to avoid it getting in the way of him drawing his gun. We get an immediate reverse shot showing the same angle this time from Cobb back over toward Payton who is holding his hand right next to his holster. Once again, the only signs of life besides Stella are some horses Everything about the town, the entirety of Silverado, is behind Payton. Nothing is behind Cobb. We pull back to the medium shot, showing all three of them again in that triangular pose. A couple of tumbleweeds come flying in, more dust, and that's where the minute ends. We're going to have to wait until tomorrow to see who flinches, who fires, who draws, 
who stands and who falls. Folks, I know this went a little bit long. I can tell you the next few episodes won't nearly be as long because I needed to spend some time going through my thoughts of the movie and kind of level setting you over who we are, where we've been, and why we are part of this Movies by Minutes project. I really, really have enjoyed getting a chance to be the caboose this time. I initially went and talked to Jim and said, wait a minute, we opened the last two of these collaborative seasons. You've trusted us to get it started, and now we're all the way at the end of the line? And he's like, yeah, but you know what? The caboose is pretty important too. I have to admit, having this minute leading into the next and then the close of the film, I could not be more proud to be part of this group of esteemed podcasters, this great group of folks who have brought you the Silverado Minute, one minute of the movie at a time. If you haven't figured it out, you can find the Silverado Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you find your podcasts. You can also get them and learn more by visiting SilveradoMinute.com, the website for this project. You can also find us on social media. If you want to join the group that's been set up for this discussion, you can find the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener's Saloon on Facebook, and join us on Twitter, Silverado MXM, which stands for Movies by Minutes. Silverado MXM. And while we're at it, you can find us, The Wilder Ride, by just looking in those exact same places for The Wilder Ride. We have thewilderride.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on every other podcatcher out there. And we would encourage you to go back and discover the first two seasons where we broke down movies one minute at a time and then enjoy some of the interviews we had with some amazing guests in seasons three and four. Until tomorrow, you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for being on this journey. We have only a few minutes left as this movie is beginning to wind down. We're going to have that epic, epic draw tomorrow. So come on back for the next installment of the Silverado Minute. Yeehaw!